Have you ever been outside working in the yard or spending time with your family when all of a sudden the weather changes dramatically? Of course you have. You live in Kentucky, right? <laughs> this, this, this happens all the time, does it not, right? And tell me, in those moments when you're outside and all of a sudden you see the storm clouds rolling in, do you not try to finish up whatever it is you're doing there in the yard as quickly as possible? And you want to get it done before the rain comes and, and the various storms. Well, on August 24th, 1919, the Cleveland Indians and then the Philadelphia Athletics, they tried to do exactly that. It was the top of the ninth inning, and the Cleveland Indians were winning. They're the home team. And their pitcher, Ray Caldwell, he had his best stuff. Through the first eight innings, he held the athletics to only four hits. Well, when the Indians took the field on the top of the ninth inning, storm clouds began to roll in off Lake Erie, and they were rolling in fast. And the Indian players, they're familiar with the dramatic weather changes there in Cleveland, so they ran out to the field as quickly as they could to get into position and hopefully try to just grind out three more outs, win the game, and have the game over. Well, Caldwell, the pitcher, the pitcher, he gets up to the mound, and within minutes, he gets the first two batters out. Well, right as Caldwell is about to set and pitch to the third batter, a flash of lightning explodes from the sky and strikes down right in the center of the baseball diamond. In fact, the violence of the lightning strike is so great, all the players fall to the ground. Five seconds later, people are kind of going up looking around, and as they go to stand up, all eight position players are okay, except Caldwell. He's lying on his back, his arms are stretched out like this, and he's out cold. Players immediately rush to Caldwell, except the first guy who touches him, he leaps in the air due to the electric shock the lightning bolt had struck Caldwell. This guy, he touches it, jumps back. So everybody just kind of stares around, looking at Caldwell's body, noticing that his chest is still smoldering from where the lightning bolt had struck him. And everyone is wondering the exact same thing. And what do you think that is? Is he dead or alive? Silence falls over the field. Yet just when everyone is ready to pronounce Caldwell dead, the 31-year-old pitcher begins to moan and groan. He gets up to his knees, and then he stands up to his feet. All the players immediately rejoice, but <laughs> they still keep their distance from the guys whose chest was on fire just moments ago. I mean, wouldn't you? Naturally, they want, they want to take him to the hospital, but Caldwell refuses. In fact, he's so insistent. He's like, look, I have one more out to get to complete this game. 
is that he's so insistent that he stays in the game that his manager lets him. The umpires, they look at each other, they shrug their shoulders, and they're like, play ball. Get this. Caldwell throws one more pitch. The batter hits it to the third baseman, who fields the ball, then throws it over to the first base for the final out of the game. And in that moment, both the players and the fans all stand in shock. For they just witnessed Caldwell survive a lightning strike and then finish a complete game win. Incredible story, isn't it? And in the words of Han Solo, it's true. All of it. Okay? Now, you, you should have seen your faces as I was telling that story. You know why? Because all your faces had, had this look of unbelief. And you know what? Rightly so. In fact, have you ever noticed that often our default response to any kind of extraordinary news is one of doubt? I mean, have you ever noticed this? I mean, ladies, if your girlfriend calls you up and says, Macy's is having a 70% off sale and you get another 20% off when you go to the register, what's going to be your first thought? Doubt. Like, no, no way this could happen. Or parents, what would come to your mind if your teenager walks down the stairs and says, Mom and Dad, my homework's all done and my room is spick and span completely clean? <laughs> Tell me, what comes to your mind? Doubt, right? Indeed, when we ourselves make some kind of, or announce some kind of extraordinary news with someone, how do we often preface it? You're never going to believe this, right? And then we share the news, and what do people say? No way, right? Indeed, in those moments, we want some evidence, right? We, we want some evidence to prove that the claim you're making is, is, is legit, right? Proof that a pitcher finished the game after being struck by lightning in the chest. Proof that Macy's is having a 70% off sale. Proof that your teenager did, in fact, clean up his or her room and completed all his or her homework. I want to suggest that our default response to any kind of extraordinary claim is one of doubt. Which means... It's understandable then for a person to have doubts, serious doubts about Christianity. You know why? Because Christianity makes some extraordinary claims. For example, Christianity just doesn't teach that Jesus was a good teacher. Now, Christianity claims that Jesus was the very, is the very Son of God. Now, now, think about this for a moment. 
the creator God, the God who made all things, including you, he actually came to earth 2,000 years ago and walked this planet. In Jesus Christ, God dwelt among us. Yet, by far the most incredible claim that Christianity makes is that Jesus Christ physically came back to life. Christianity claims that Jesus didn't get knocked out for one or two moments like Ray Caldwell did there on the pitcher's mound. No, the claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and then three days later was physically raised to new life. (laughs) Now, this is an extraordinary claim. In fact, for many people, in fact, many people that I talk to on a regular basis, this is the major roadblock that prevents them from becoming a Christian. They love the idea that Jesus Christ came to earth to save people from their sins. They like the teachings of Jesus. But hold on a second. You're telling me that a guy died and then three days later came back to life? That, that's, a little too, that's a little too much for me. It's a little too fairy tale like In fact, can I ask, is that true of you? Do you have a hard time believing that Jesus actually came back to life? Does that seem a little too far-fetched? If so, friend, I want you to know you're not alone. You see, in our text this morning, we're going to meet someone who, like you, has real doubts about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Indeed, like so many of us, this person wants hard evidence to support the claim that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. You know who this person is? This person's name is Thomas. That Thomas was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. And as we read the gospel accounts, Thomas was fiercely loyal to Jesus. Fiercely loyal to Jesus. Yet get a load of this. After the crucifixion, after Jesus died on the cross, Thomas's fellow disciples came to Thomas and said, we have seen the risen Christ. Jesus Christ is alive. And you know how Thomas responded? The same way all of us tend to respond when we hear extraordinary news. He's like, no way. He doubted the claim. He wanted some evidence. So this Easter morning, what I want to do is I want us to consider Thomas's request. I want us to examine the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Did it really happen? And if so, what proof is there to back up, again, this extraordinary claim? But here's perhaps the most important question we're going to consider this morning, and that's this. If Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead, 
What impact should that have on our lives today? Because here's the deal, friend. If Jesus did in fact come back from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And if Jesus is God, please hear me, others are not. But not only that, if Jesus did in fact come back from the dead, proving himself to be God, friend, this means you cannot live your life any way you want. You know why? Because you have a creator and master you are accountable to. This is why when we started our service, we read from 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul hits the nail on the head. He's like, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, this whole thing is shambles. The entire Christian faith, we are to be pitied among all people. But if he did walk out of an empty tomb three days after being crucified on a cross, then that changes everything. And you will have a choice to make. So if you haven't already, please turn within your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you need a Bible, we have some in the chair in front of you. A white paperback Bible there. And this morning we're going to be looking at a couple different spots in John 20. But what I'd like to do is direct your attention first to, to John 20, verse 24, as I read 24 through 31. So Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to some. And now we're going to pick things up in verse 24 and we read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that's you. You know who the you is? That's me. That's you. That's all of us today reading this passage. He says this. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Many moons ago, I used to wait tables at a high-end steak restaurant. Have I mentioned that before? Yes, I have. Well, one night, one night, I had a guy sitting at my table who looked just like Don Mattingly, the famous baseball player. By the way, not all my illustrations this morning are baseball-related, so you can... You can rest at ease. But there at table 63, I had this guy that looked just like Don Mattingly, but I, but I didn't know for sure. I mean, he had, he had the beady eyes, he had the mustache, but he was shorter than I thought he would be, so I didn't know for sure if that's Don Mattingly. So to help me figure out what was going on, I said to a couple of my server buddies, I said, hey, could you just swing by table 63 and tell me what you think? Do you think that's Don Mattingly there? My first boy's like, oh, man, that's Don Mattingly. A couple was like, ah, I weren't so sure. I even had one of my managers swing by, and he's like, I, I, don't, I don't think that's him. Well, hours passed with no consensus. Who's sitting at this table? The suspense was killing me, okay? Well, finally, it came time for me to drop off the check, and I was like, yes, now I'm going to find out who this is. He's going to pay with a credit card. I'll see the name on the card. I'll know who this is. Yet, to my horror, when I drop off the check, guess how he pays? Cash. And when I go to bring him back the cash, I say, or his change, here's your change. He's like, no, go ahead and keep it. And in that moment, with the meal over, and me holding the bill full with the change in there, I thought, I'm never going to know for sure if I waited on Don Mattingly or not. And I have to tell you, it was a sad night for me. And the passage I just read, John gives the reason for why he wrote this gospel. Do you see it there in verse 31? You know what his purpose is? Very clearly, it's so that we would not have to, hear me, guess at the identity of Jesus. Unlike me and that guy at table 63, John has written these things so that we would know exactly who Jesus is. And you know who that is? John wants us to know he's the risen Lord. But that's not all. You see, John just doesn't want us to know that Jesus is the risen Lord. Hear me, he actually wants us to believe it. In fact, the main idea of our passage this morning and the main point that I'm going to ask you to consider this morning is really an invitation. And you know what that invitation is? It's an invitation to believe that Jesus is the risen Lord. Friend, this Easter morning, I want to invite you to put your confidence and faith in Jesus as the risen Lord. To believe that He is who He claims to be. 
Because notice how this point is made very clear in the text I just read. Notice it's made clear by the word Jesus speaks directly to Thomas. And then the statement John writes directly to us. Just as Jesus wanted Thomas to believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God who defeated sin and death by his resurrection, so too John wants us to believe the same thing. He wants us to trust that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead accomplished everything necessary to save sinful people like you and me. Sinful people who can receive this salvation simply by faith. But again, this is an extraordinary claim. So why believe? Well, I want you to consider the evidence that supports the claims of Christianity. I want you to first consider this. Consider first that Jesus really died. Go ahead and back up a little bit to John 19. And I want to read a couple of verses in the previous chapter. Jesus is, is hanging on the cross, and we're going to pick things up in verse 30. He's hanging on the cross, and it says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. What you have to understand, friend, is that crucifixion was a slow death. It wasn't meant to be quick. It was meant to be painful and long. And so these men, Jesus is on the cross, there's one to his right, one to his left. These men are on the cross anguishing and suffering and they're not dying quick enough. So the Jews asked Pilate to break their legs. When they break their legs, there's no more support. They would drop down and they would die by suffocation so they could not breathe. The Jews wanted to get this over with because we're approaching the Sabbath. So notice what happens next. They ask him to, to break the legs. So verse 32, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. Now listen to this. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, signifying he had died. Uh, last month, uh, NBC News, they ran this story. Eight-foot alligator hiding in attic startles home inspector. Here's the alligator. On March 9th, Dean Brown was conducting a routine home inspection at a home in North Carolina when he found this alligator up in the attic. At first, he thought it was a fake. But then he saw it breathing. 
In an interview, Dean said this, quote, He didn't really move at first. He was kind of asleep, I guess. But once I shined my flashlight on his head, his eyes started to open, and he gave me a wink to let me know I'm alive. <laughs> and this was on the third show. Can you imagine? But guess what? When Dean told people what happened, no one believed him. Well, no one believed him, that is, until animal, animal control came and identified the animal. Then people believed him. For several hundred years, people have tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus by saying that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just simply passed out, and then when he got in a nice, cool tomb, he resuscitated. However, historically, that makes little sense. You know why? Because tell me, who killed Jesus? The Romans. And you know what the Romans were experts at? You guys know this. Killing people. The Romans, you could say, they were the SEAL Team 6 of that day. They knew how to kill someone, but more importantly, they also knew when someone was dead. I mean, if anyone could identify a dead body, it was them. Indeed, what does John 19.13 state? I just read it. That verse records the soldiers affirming that Jesus was dead. So to say the Romans couldn't tell if Jesus died is like saying animal control couldn't tell if that was an alligator in the attic. So the idea that somehow Jesus just passed out and then resuscitated in a calm tomb makes no sense historically. Furthermore, the crucifixion was a public event. Others saw Jesus dying on the cross. Others saw the expert killers of that day crucifying men on a Roman road. Friend, Jesus did in fact die on the cross. And as verse 27 of chapter, verse 27 of chapter 20 makes clear, he has the scars to prove it. And you know what those scars represent, friend? Those scars represent God's love for you. In his book, The Elements of Eloquence, author Mark Forsyth makes an astute observation that you don't have to know a rule to know that you should be following it. Take, for example, he says, the rule of ablot reduplication. Chances are you've never heard of it, and chances are I probably mispronounced it. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, I promise you, you all follow it the same. <laughs> Listen to what Forsyth writes. He says, there are rules that everybody obeys without noticing. Have you ever heard that patter-pitter of tiny feet? Or the dong-ding of a bell? Or hop-hip music? That's because when you repeat a word with a different vowel, the order is always I-A-O. So politicians may flip-flop, 
but they can never flop flip. Right? It's tit for tat, never tat for tit. If you do things in any other way, they sound very, very odd indeed. But then he, he closes with this. He says, Teachers do not have to teach this rule in grammar school, but it's known all the same. Even when we don't officially know the rules, we instinctively know we should follow them and can immediately identify when something is wrong. And friend, the same is true spiritually. The Bible teaches that we've been created to worship and to submit to God as our King. But we haven't. I know I haven't. Instead, we all have chosen to live for ourselves, to be our own kings. And and when we choose to live for us, rather than submit and follow God, the Bible has a word for that. And that word is sin. And like with this grammar rule, we all instinctively know that living for ourselves is wrong. But to make matters even worse, our sin, the Bible teaches, it earns us something, and that is eternal separation from God in hell. Because of our sin, my sin, your sin, we come into this world and we stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. But it gets even worse. Not only do we live for ourselves, not only do we give way to sin, and this sin earns a judgment, but friend, we also do not have the resources to pay off the debt we owe God for our sin. Which means we are completely incapable of saving ourselves. And I want that statement to just sit with us for a moment. There are things you have thought of, there are things you have done that you would be terrified if others found out. That terror, that sense of shame is your knowing I'm doing something wrong. And that sin carries with it a punishment of condemnation, and rightly so. Yet, friend, please hear me. In an extraordinary act of selfless love, instead of justly condemning us, Jesus Christ left the comforts of heaven to come to earth to suffer and die in our place for our sin. This is why the Bible calls this good news. Think about this. The only perfect, truly innocent person to walk this earth, he willingly went to the cross to die for people who intentionally have rejected him. Jesus took the punishment guilty sinners deserve so that by faith, and faith alone, they could be forgiven of their sins and made right with God. 
And friend, that's what Jesus' scars represent. They announce that Jesus willingly bore the wrath you have earned. It's It's the great exchange. We deserve judgment for our sin. Christ came to absorb the full wrath of that on the cross so that by faith and faith alone we can go free and be forgiven. This is what makes Christianity good news. And I want to ask you, friend, have you considered this seriously? Have you had an inventory of yourself and said, I can't do it, and are you trusting in yourself or in the work of Christ alone to save you? When we consider these claims of Jesus, we must consider the fact that he did in fact die, and praise the Lord, he did. Because it was his way to save sinners. But second, I want you to consider that women were the first witnesses. Look in chapter 20, beginning in verse 11 here. Mary goes to the tomb. It's empty. He's weeping. He doesn't know where they are or where where Jesus is. And look at verse 14. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And listen to this. Supposing him to be the gardener. <laughs> she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher, And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Uh, Several years ago, CNN ran a report of a tragic murder uh, in the French Alps. Four people were shot and killed inside their car outside of a beauty salon. Now, this is a tragic thing, and normally a report like that doesn't make its way to the States. However, this case got international attention. You know why it got international attention? It did so because the key witnesses of this crime were a four-year-old little girl and her sister. This four-year-old little girl. And the police relied heavily on this four-year-old little girl's testimony in order to solve the crime. Now, while a woman's testimony, even a girl's testimony, would be valid in today's courts, it would not be in the ancient world. You see, what you have to understand is that the ancient world is very different from today. At the time of Christ, women had a very, very low social status. Get this. So much so that a woman's testimony was not admissible evidence in court. Think about that. At the time of Christ, women were so looked down upon they were considered untrustworthy and no one would take their testimony as legit in a court of law. 
those who object to the reality of the resurrection often claim this. This is made up. This whole story of Jesus coming back from the dead, the whole thing is made up. But I want you to notice the people who provide continuity to the resurrection are who? Women. Women were the ones who went to the tomb, saw the angel, and met the resurrected Christ. Women were the ones who were then instructed to go and tell others about this. The Bible goes out of its way to make this point that women were the first witnesses. As such, there would be no possible advantage, none to the church, to recount that all the first witnesses of Jesus were women. You know what? You know what? It could only have undermined the credibility of the testimony. I mean, if you're going to make up a story in the ancient world, why put women at the center of it? N.T. Wright is a world-class historian, and in his significant book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he argues that there must have been enormous pressure on the early Christians to remove women from these accounts. But they didn't. What I'm saying is this. If the early Christians were trying to make up this story, they did a terrible job placing the women there. However, thousands heard this message and believed it. And if we're being sensible people, rational people here, then we can only conclude that the message the women were telling was true. But then third, consider the fact that the tomb was empty. Look at what we read in verse 5 of chapter 20. <laughs> there's, a, there's a race between Simon Peter and John. And John makes it a point to let everybody know that he got there first, that he's faster than Peter, right? Okay, look at verse 4. Both men were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. But here's what I want you to see. In stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. The tomb was empty. Did, did you all know that the game Uno changed the rules? Did you hear this? In October of last year, Uno's official Twitter account confirmed, brace yourself, okay, that you're not allowed to stack, draw two cards on top of each other. Yes, right? So if, one, so if one player draws two, the next player cannot put down another draw two, thus causing the next player to draw four. How many of you loved to do that? I heard it down here, right? Is there not something dark and also just satisfying? <laughs> when you just get to do that and the poor person draws four? Now, some of you, you might still play that way and allow that to happen. I mean, it is a game, right? Yet, there are some rules that no one should ever dare to break. And this was definitely the case during the time of Christ. And you know what one of those rules were? Moving a corpse. Jewish laws prohibited moving a corpse after it was interred. 
it, it would almost be like for a Jewish person to, to move, of course, them to eat bacon. It, it was part of the, a way of life. For, so, for some reason, people today tend to think that we are the only ones ever to doubt the claim that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Most people tend to think that people in the ancient time, they're just knuckle-draggers who are dumb and dull, and they'll just believe anything everybody tells them. But friend, nothing could be further from the truth. When considering the historical data of the resurrection, you have to take into account the tomb was empty. No one in Jerusalem would have believed for a minute that Jesus rose from the dead if the tomb was not empty. Skeptics could have just pointed to Jesus' rotting corpse. However, the tomb was empty. Even the enemies of Christianity affirmed this. But furthermore, to suggest that Jesus' Jewish followers would have gone into the tomb and moved his dead body is a failure to understand Jewish culture and laws. Such an action would have gone against their way of life. But fourth, I invite you to consider also the eyewitness sightings. I mean, this is what we look at in verse 26 with Thomas. You know, groups of people, <laughs> when people get together, and there's a large group of people, groups of people can do crazy things, can't they? I mean, have you ever been to the Derby? Ever just peered over into the infield and seen the debauchery that happens in there, right? Okay. This is what, though, makes reality TV so entertaining at times, isn't it? You get a group of people in a room or on an island. It can make for some fascinating TV. Groups of people often do crazy things. But you know what groups of people never do? experience the exact same hallucination together. This is a scientific fact. There's no such thing as a group of people experiencing the exact same hallucination. Some people argue that the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus were simply hallucinations. You know, oh, they, they missed Jesus so much that their mind tricked them to believe that they saw him. Like, like someone really wants to see Bigfoot and they see Bigfoot off in the distance. Oh, I saw him, right? They wanted it so much, they just, whatever they could see, they thought it was him. However, as the Gospel of John records, Jesus appeared to over 10 men in addition to the women. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once. As I mentioned, modern studies have shown that group hallucinations don't happen. So listen to me. So if these weren't group hallucinations, or if these weren't group hallucinations, tell me what were they? How do you account for hundreds of people claiming to see the resurrected Jesus at the same time? I'm going to push in and suggest that if we're reasonable people, the only logical explanation is that these were indeed eyewitness accounts of the risen Lord. Then finally, I invite you to consider that people died for this message. Friend, you must historically take into account the reality that as Christianity spread like wildfire after Christ rose from the dead, many people died for claiming to see Jesus. 
This is significant. Virtually all the apostles and the early Christian leaders died for their faith. And it's really, 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 really hard to believe that this kind of powerful self-sacrifice would have been done to support a hoax. Just think about it for a moment. The central message of the church, the early church, that Jesus was Lord and that he'd risen from the dead, that message did not gain the apostles any power or prestige. No, that message led to nearly all of them getting killed. So to say that the apostles fabricated these stories means they decided to invent a religion knowing it would end in their painful, humiliating deaths. I don't find that a compelling reason, or rather a compelling scenario. Making up stuff about Jesus for your comfort and fame? Maybe. But making up stuff about Jesus so that you would suffer and die a painful, humiliating death? Really? I don't think so. The only logical and reasonable explanation for why nearly all the disciples died from claiming to see the resurrected Jesus is that they actually saw the resurrected Jesus. As Blaise Pascal put it, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. That's Christianity. Now, you might be sitting here this morning still not persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what? That's your choice. I cannot make you believe. But friend, if you choose not to believe in the resurrection, then how do you explain these facts? Because look, you don't get the option to say, oh, he, didn't, he just didn't rise from the dead. You cannot simply say that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You have to give a logical and coherent explanation for why you don't believe. For example, what's your explanation for the empty tomb? How do you explain all the eyewitnesses? How do you account for the rise of the church and how so many gave their lives for what they claimed they saw? Listen, friend, if you don't believe, the burden of proof is on you to explain these things away. Friend, biblical Christianity is not a faith of kooks who hide their heads in the sand. No, I would argue that Christians are the most reasonable of all people. They've looked carefully at the claims and they found them to be true. This book, friend, is testifying that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the risen Lord. And that leaves you with two options this morning. You can either reject him or you can submit to him. You can either turn from Jesus and keep living for yourself, you being your own king, or you can say like Thomas, my God and my Lord. 
And that is what I want to challenge you to do this morning. Friend, have you put your faith in Christ? Have you accepted the free gift of salvation that is offered in Jesus? And have you submitted to his rightful rule in your life as the one true God? When that guy at table 63 told me to keep the change, I went back to the computer and I closed the check. But you know what? In an act of boldness, I went back to the table. I went back to the table. I, I, I could not live with myself, not knowing who this guy was. So I went up to him. He's done eating. And he kind of looks surprised at me and I say, Sir, thank you for your generous tip. He tipped very well, by the way. And I looked at him and I said, I have to ask you, are you Don Mattingly? <laughs> you know what he did? He looked up at me and he smiled and he said, Yes, I am. Which made sense because during the entire meal, they were talking about baseball. And he was actually there with an agent who wanted him to write a book about something. So I said, are you Don Mattingly? He said, yes, I am. And you know what I did next? I ran to the kitchen, and I got a recooked ticket for him to send it back up. <laughs> In fact, here it is. <laughs> Friend, John has written this book that we might know for certain who Jesus is. This gospel, this book, you could say, is the recook ticket, proving Jesus is who he claimed to be, the risen Lord whom you are accountable to, whom died to save you, who offers salvation if you will receive it by faith. Let us rejoice in the fact that Jesus has come to earth to rescue us from our sins through his death and resurrection. And may we believe that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and then submit to his rightful rule in our lives. Amen? Let's pray.